You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. My time is yours. I was the last My man standing. For I am the man, and the man feels no pressure. You are facing a fuel-injected suicide machine. Fear from the man that rules the world. I'm the man. When I walk, the ground shakes. I am the master. I am the ruler of the world. You are now entering the vicious circle. And welcome to the Vicious Circle. We've had a busy day today, haven't we? Man, it's been fun. Yes, we went for a car ride. <clears throat> we did. He took us for a ride. <laughs> went for a car ride, and we learned history. Right. Sid's history. Now, this is not super critical to my job here, but it is very critical to your job, Barry. Right. 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 Explain to me how you're going to incorporate all of this. Well, this is the major challenge of writing a a biography about someone else. I've written two books, which are about me. Uh, I'm trying to serve the material, the subject, which is Sid, and writing about his life and his viewpoint of how his life has come to where it is. And what we did today, which we had talked about for a long time, was to go all around the area that he grew up, see the uh, various houses he lived in, places that he and his friends played, schools that he went to, to obviously, like any person, when you're, when you're going down memory lane, it's going to trigger those memories, and it's going to be very, very visceral, because this is where you grew up. These are where these things happen. These are where these incidents, good and bad, happen. And as you and I are riding the truck with them, obviously, you know, he's telling us we're getting a, a real feel of the lay of the land as Sid's universe at that time, and listening to him talk about. Now, it's up to me to find ways to use the combination of my voice and my writing style to serve this material, trying to see it through Sid's eyes, which is obviously incredibly helpful when you're driving all day, seeing all these various places. Also being a, you know, a guy that grew up north in Boston, this is, ext- I mean, even, I lived in the South for 20 years, but that was Atlanta. This is very, very different than anything I've ever you know, personally seen or experienced. And Sid and I have talked somewhat, you know, not only about the book, but just being friends for, for 30 years, about some of the places he lived. So it became absolutely fascinating to absolutely see the places that he was talking about, to get a feel of what it must have been like to be five years old, 10 years old, going you know, through these fields, you know, incredibly expansive farmland through these unbelievably poor neighborhoods that are obviously, they're still poor, but there's more built up now. You can imagine, take away a lot of the buildings and strip malls that are here now, and it's that much more empty. And to try to figure out what that must have been like for him as for me as the writer, to put that in a visceral way so the reader is really getting a sense of who Sid is. Now, of course, this is being written in first person from Sid. So I'm really trying to give voice, his voice, trying to know the way he thinks and the way he thought at the time then and the way he's discussing it now and to try to do it in a conversational way. Like uh, Sid and I have talked about this. Imagine if you're at a, at a dinner party with interesting guests and you end up sitting you know, on the couch with someone who's talking to you about themselves, and it's fascinating. And they're not doing it. They're not thinking of you know, the perfect grammar or the perfect sentence. This is just exposing you know, your life, and you're, and you're just absolutely fascinated by it, especially if it's very, very different from your own. 
So it presents just so many you no know, challenges because I want to make sure that I you know this is the book that he wants and what readers and not just wrestling fans are both of our hope is a person that may never have heard of Sid Vicious, Sid Justice, Psycho Sid will for whatever reason pick this up and, and say, oh my God, this is an unbelievable story. I, I want to read more. I, 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 I got to get to this next chapter. And we're writing in a nonlinear fashion. Uh, it's, it's more of a collection of short stories, uh, true stories about his life. The idea behind that is the traditional biography is that ah, da, da, this happened and then I turned eight and then I turned nine and you're just going this linear fashion and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to put that down or denigrate it. But once again, when you think of being in a conversation with someone who's fascinating you, it doesn't work like that. You're going to be talking about this event and that's going to trigger another one that may have happened five years before. And then they'll start talking about that event and it'll actually clear up some of the context about what ha- the experience he was talking about earlier. And this whole thing starts coalescing and you, and you start really getting a feel of the person that you're talking about. And that's what we're trying to do here. And, and that's amazing challenge. I mean, I've, I've never done anything like this. So it's fascinating to me, not just because the subject matter is fascinating, but someone I've known for 30 years, but not like this. I haven't known and, like I said, physically seen the areas where, where, where Sid grew up. And then it's almost like if you're reading a book that was made into a movie before you see the movie, you start picturing what the characters look like and sound like you know, in your mind. I'm getting a feel of what some of Sid's early childhood friends must have looked like and sounded like and, and how they acted and interacted. And then I'm starting getting a feel like how they dressed and, and, and the inflection of their voice. And, what the, and, and to me, that's fascinating writing this. I mean, it's... It's, it's really getting a vivid picture. Like I'm actually, you know, as, as everyone, you both know, I'm also a filmmaker. So I'm actually writing a book that in my mind is filmic. So it's challenging, it's fascinating, and it can also be grueling because there's just so many things involved in it. <clears throat> now, the one, I got this idea, and I, I think this, when I saw this, I said, man, this is the way, because we've been talking about doing this book for a long time. I saw the movie uh, Truman Capote. And the reason I think that he made such a good, wrote such a good book that was able to turn out to be a good movie is he went there, he met those guys, he saw the house that the people were murdered in. Now, Barry got a chance today. Now, if I tell Barry on the phone like we've talked about millions of times ago, Barry used to wake up at 3.30, I left my house, and we walked to the Mississippi River. Well, today, he saw that railroad track. And no, we had to drive it because we couldn't physically walk that anymore. But he saw the distances that I walked to hunt and fish to me. I mean, again, uh, like we said, you don't see, you know, people, the kids in the fifth or sixth grade doing that anymore. You know, I mean, we, it's just, that's what I really believe now. We didn't yes uh, today, but tomorrow we're going to see a part of some other things I did where I soloed, you know, in an airplane when I was 17 years old. So, you know, it's just, again, I, I, I've said this before, I think um, my life before wrestling is pretty, it's almost like a Huckleberry Finn type of deal, but I was doing all the work. Like, you know, we talked about saving up, uh, I think Barry wrote uh, a chapter today, it was talking about, you know, everybody thought I didn't have any money, which I didn't, I was working on a farm, but I never cashed a check. I put every check in a, into a savings account to where one day I buy myself a new car. And those were, again, you know, those were, you know, I've said this before, I, sometimes I was just in the right place at the right time, met someone that taught me the word effort. And really, I learned a lot from my stepfather, Travis, you know, the love for music, stuff like that. But the one word I really realized was, man, if you put a lot, just a little bit of effort out, 
some, you know, something pretty cool could come out of it. It was just make some money, you know? Well, see, I found it fascinating that you and I sat down for the very first episode of this podcast, and it was about you just before going to WC or to Continental right. or Memphis, I guess. So sorry. <laughs> we did it in 30 minutes. Right. We were in that car for hours. Right. And like you said, you don't know it until you're there. Right. When you talk about working the fields. We saw how far those things stretched. No, yeah. You can't guess that. No, you can't. You just can't imagine that. I'm talking about go one way for, you know, a half a day and never turn around, you know, those long turn roads. But that to me, guys, and y'all got to experience that with me. And so to me, those also were great times as a kid, staying out of trouble, going out through places, you know, building up your little bonfire that you would be there later on that night, having our, you know, sodas and stuff like that. But, you know, today we got to really see what it was. That's, again, why people go, Sid, why are your feet so firm on the ground? That's why, man, I I had values like that. You know, I I never looked above that or beyond that, you know. Now, um, I really enjoyed Barry being there today, too, you know, being able to see these things and stuff like that. For now, when he writes about it, He'll smell that honeysuckle that I smelled that morning, you know, walking across that field where his feet would get wet thinking about that long walk there, you know, stuff like that. But um, I really believe if you're there firsthand, and and I think we all witnessed it, we saw this, and he says, now you can, now if you were to read that, you're going to say, man, I saw that, you know. And I think Billy, uh, Billy, uh, Barry's ability to writing, I think just, we made a few changes today in one of the chapters, chapters, and it really you really feel like you're out there walking. You know, oh, absolutely! I yeah. got to I got to test read that one chapter, and absolutely. You know, it's something I asked Barry a long time ago about when we were talking about writing this book, and and I only think he remembers this. I said, "Man, would it be cool, or is it possible about writing something about something a certain time frame, and then going to something else, and even coming back to that?" No, I only think you know if I said that to you, but that's what we're doing, which I think is cool. You know, like, um, it'd be, you know, if you say you're talking to me, I say, I'm thinking this. If we're writing, we're talking about, yeah, it was pretty fun to be a kid. Yeah, like that time I got two DUIs one night, you know, out running the cops and come back home. Because this is true stuff. You know, this is what people don't, uh, this is what I really love about the South. Like, there was a place down in Mississippi, I told you, you know, they had a farm there too. And during the summers, I'd go down there and work. Well, there was a just one old, you know, police officer, no jailhouse. It was nearest real jailhouse was like thirty miles away, so they didn't want to take you to jail. So a buddy of mine would be in that vet of mine. We'd outrun the cops, leave town. I say I was driving, right? We'd let Mike get behind the wheel and drive back into town. And the cops said, "Okay, now I'm going to go ahead. I'm, y'all done, done. I'm going to have to run y'all to jail." And and Mike would go, uh, whatever his name was, Bob. Bob, I'm going to tell you something right now. I swear to God, that wasn't me driving. And the guy's eyes would get big. Did you say you swear to God? Yeah, I swear to God, that wasn't me. Well, God, if you swear to God, dude, I guess, well, God, you know, God, you wouldn't lie about that. Which he wasn't. I was driving. Then we do the same thing with him driving. Then I drive back in town, they go, Sid, this is it. You know, y'all doing this all night. We're going to have to take you to jail. Well, Bob, I'm going to tell you something right now. If God strike me dead, that, I, that wasn't me. That must have been another car. That wasn't me. 
Now, do you just swear to God? Yeah, I swear to God. Okay, you know, we did this list for like a year, you know. Finally, he really threatened to take us to jail. But that was the cool thing about being a kid back in those days, you know, getting away with stuff like that. You know, we were just, it was harmless stuff, you know. But I got to do those things. And I don't know, I, I, I think my son Frank's like me a little bit. I'm one of, you know, Frank one time got kicked out of school, you know, perfect, you know, one of the smartest kids in school, the most loved kid at school, but he was like me, didn't know when to stop something. And uh, what it was, he had said a joke in school and everybody laughed and 30 minutes later, he's still telling the joke and there's no one's laughing anymore. And the teacher said, Frank, uh, please, come on, man. No one's laughing. Uh, would you please stop that? He goes, and like say the punchline would, was fart. He goes, oh yeah, fart. And they're like, Frank, please, you know. <laughs> I already got about it. You know, you know, this something stupid. So she starts crying and says, Frank, you know, you're the greatest student that ever passed through the school, but you don't know when to shut your mouth. Go home. <laughs> you know, so I guess I'm sort of like that too, you know. But no, I, I just, man, that was, to me, words I, I didn't stay in school much, but I went there. I was sort of the class clown, you know, or fighting or something. But um, no, man, that, that to me is... Um, the most fun and we actually go through a, the older stage today was the the young kid you know showing where we hunted and fished now tomorrow's going to be some of the routes where i was out running the law you know and some embarrassing things this is what you know one of the most embarrassing moments of my life i had uh saved up got that brand new z28 had ordered a year ahead of time i had all but 200 dollars to pay cash for it borrowed the 200 dollars from the guy i worked for and um, still had drive-out tags. And just so happened, we went to, I can't even remember the name of who went to a concert. And uh, we were pulling out of a car dealership. It was right across from Waffle House. We had just eaten there. And um, pulled out and didn't see, no, I was pulling out of Waffle House. The cops was at the dealership, just like American Graffiti, right? And so we burn out of the driveway. And cops start chasing me. We haul ass and went through this real windy road and got away from them and come back home. So I get in bed, so they come and get me. Said, we know that was you. You're the only guy in the town with a brand new C28 with dealer tag, you know, drive-out tag. So I said, man, that wasn't me, man, I swear. So I'm handcuffed. They wouldn't even let me put a T-shirt on. So the floor was freshly painted. It was paint, you know. And they said, well, let's help you up these steps. I said, man, I don't need any help from you. So I jumped up there. When I did, I fell. And it was, you know, it's embarrassing. They're laughing at me. I go, oh, I said, is something funny? I said, well, I'll tell you what's going to be funny. When I get home, we're going to do this shit again, man. And as soon as I got home, I got in my car and took off again. They chased me through town again. But uh, I did that all the time, you know. But to me, that was just, that was like, again, that was sort of the, the American graffiti days of my life, you know. Just, uh, to me, that was just, man, we lived it up, dude. And that's that's what it's about. And well, it that's, back in those days, it was normal. It's not like today. You know, oh yeah, things are so different anymore. Oh, it is, and I think it should be. But you know, back in those days, man, I had actually before I got that Corvette or that Z28, I had an old bought an old Maverick, and we'd get so many people in there, we could go you know anywhere we wanted. We got stuck, everybody'd get out, we'd just push it out of the hole and keep going. You know, we get us, we'd always go to Memphis and get those eight Packer Miller ponies because we weren't tough enough to drink Budweiser yet. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> Budweiser was the greener beer you know but there was a old beer stop in memphis and me being so big 
and I had my license from being in Puerto Rico gig that looked like I was 18, so I could buy beer over there, you know, so we'd go get those Miller ponies and just kill them, you know, man. Those were, I, I swear that's, but again, I think that's going to be a really good part of the book. I think, like Barry said, people are going to see that and go, man, I might want to, and then because switching back and forth, we will be able to put a little wrestling in there, you know, to make, make you know, make them really be a good mix. Well-rounded. Well, well, well here, here's what's fascinating to me. Like, uh, just listening to you talk about these stories now, and you're talking about uh, some of the places that we saw today from your early childhood. My impression, which I mentioned briefly before, was there is some abject poverty here. And this looking better now than it obviously did back at the time you were talking about when you were five, six, seven, eight. I mean, the, the, some of the houses and apartments are horrible. You mentioned schools. Right. We saw a couple of schools today, a couple that you attended, that I mentioned is that, oh, my God, these look like concentration camps. Right. If I was producing a film that was taking place at a concentration camp, this is a location I'd right. want to secure. And they have to look better now than they did back then. Oh, yeah. And we're listening to you talk about your childhood about these times, and here's where subjectivity is fascinating. You were not looking at it like, oh, my God, poor me, and anyone listening to your story said, this is awful. This is tragic. How did you get through? And, and that's not how you see it. No. You, see, you see it as the, the, the incredible freedom of roaming those fields and those farms. You mentioned you worked on this one farm that was 100,000 acres, and we passed this gigantic stretch. And I said, how, how big is this? That has to be close. You go, oh, no, that's 5,000. Right. So now I'm getting some context of, 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 of the, the job that you had at age 17 or, or younger than that, working, yeah. working this farm, working all the equipment, taught me a new word, bush hogging. And I can't believe that this isn't a story of, un, no, I mean, the, the, just untellable tragedy and heartbreak. And that's not your story. That's not the story we're actually telling. It sounds like it could be. Maybe someone else reading says, oh my God, how did he get through this? Right. What did it take for him to do that? And you're actually not trying to, you know, the, pat yourself on the back. Look how tough I am. Look, how, right. you said no. This was this was great stuff. This was fantastic. You do mention, as you should, about how how this incredible work ethic was instilled. Right. And I think people who only know you from wrestling are going to say, okay, this kind of makes sense now. Right. No, we, we know for what we saw you have that absolutely no makes sense. You, this is how you were. Then this is what you learned. This is what you are now. But for me, you know, having been brought up in, in a middle class you no know, background, I said, I can't believe what you went through, what this was like, what your environment was, right. and how you got through it. And, and, and you were also mentioning music, and you mentioned American Graffiti, which is one of my favorite you know, films of all time, and how music is actually going to play you know, visceral cues right. throughout this film, that you remember certain songs that were playing at certain times, and... That's another challenge for me to try to convey that if we're me- if I'm if I'm mentioning songs or music you know, that you were remembering and that effect was a major part of that experience. Hopefully, that can be conveyed to the reader, since obviously this isn't a film yet. I think it should be at some point, but trying to get people to imagine that if they remember the song and maybe if they're a diff- even if they're a different age of you, what that might have been like. Right. Uh, if, no, hopefully they're going to you know, read enough of the picture of of, of Sid Udi going living in in this part of Arkansas. At this time, no, no, early sixties. Hopefully, with a description of the of what it was like, what the environment was like, what you know, what you and your friends you know were like, what what that was. Right. And then, like I said, going back and forth because okay, now it may be twenty years later, and and and, the, and as you said, if you're talking to someone else, it triggers this memory, and then we and then that memory triggers another, and we're going to go back and forth and get a real you no know, my one of my favorite words, the gestalt, the the the, the wholeness the, the, that is you, but 
That is just the thing I just I, I just can't you know emphasize enough is that if it was me living the life that you lived, just based, that's, I don't know if I could have done that. Right. I mean, I think I'm a tough guy. I I know, like I have gone through a lot, as as most people have, in one way or the other. Once again, it's all subjective. There's always someone, someone in the world living a lot harder and tougher sure. life than you. But it's hard to compare. It's just like if you and I both stub our toe and one thinks, ah, that's nothing. The other one's in horrible agony. Is one you know, a wimp? No, it's just everything is personal. But I can't imagine what it was like being you, although now I can more, just because having seen it and having listened to you talk about it, and I, I can't believe the positivity that you were able to convey going through things that I think would be an absolute nightmare you know, for, mo- for most people. And, and, we're not a, and I, we haven't even talked about some of the other things that I, that I personally find are even more tragic. And that you see it as everything as a, I mean, I, I hate it because it's a cliche, a teachable moment. Right. You know, you know, the various people that were in your life from, from you know, parental figures and, and, and siblings and, and some of the things that your friends have gone through. And I ask you real quickly, where are all those friends today? Right. Because I, I had a feeling. Right. So this is what we're trying to do with this book. And, and like I said, because it's a very, very different life and area that I lived in. And even though you and I have been friends for so long and I had some idea, it just goes beyond anything you know, that I imagined. Well, you know, this is why, and I told you the story, and it's embarrassed me to say this, but, you know, uh, I started, you know, if I got a job, you know, working for that farmer, I had my own little, you know, mow a few yards. If I, and I, I, I remember almost exactly what it cost. It was like 25 or 30 cents, but you wouldn't get but a dollar to, to mow a yard back in those days. But I'd walk to the store and get myself, it was, it was cheap, the cheapest cut of steak was that round steak. And I'd sit there and eat it in front of my sisters, not give them a bite because I was just that hungry. Now, on the other side of things, once I did take my, got a job and was working, I gave them allowance. You know, I got them things that, that, you know, my dad wasn't around. So I was, once I was able to do for them, I gave, you know, my sisters, I'll tell you, you know, I gave them allowance every Friday. I, I saw after them, saw that they had school clothes and stuff like that. But to get there, man, I had to eat, you know, and that was just part of it. You know, sacrifice. Now they used to steal my food all the time when I'd buy stuff. Now I had this had this one gig. I always had a, some type of job as a kid. I remember I'd sneak out of my window at midnight, go across to like one of these little grocery stores, and I'd sweep and mop the thing for the lady, and she'd give me five bucks, and then um, I'd spend it there at the store getting candy. Then I'd be so tired by the time I get home, I'd unwrap it all and put it in a little bowl. When I'd wake up, my sisters had eaten it all. I wanted to kill them, you know. But then I had a, also a job where I'd go down to the American Legion, which was next to Riverside Speedway, and I'd swim there during the day and then sell popcorn at night, you know, and then walk myself home, which, you know, you know, it's farther than we went today. But I was always trying to make it buck, you know, always trying to do something, make a dollar, you know, to have something. But then that's how, you know, I got that job with that, uh, working with that farmer. I never cashed a check, man. I saved every penny of it, did without, you know, um, and always people, you know, even my girlfriends go, you're not getting no new car. I said, wait and see. And it took me like four or five years to do it. But when I got that car, uh, the girl that I, I wouldn't date her at a time, I was dating someone else. She said, man, I'm going to have to tell you the truth, man. She said, I thought you were making that up, you know, because you never had anything. I said, well, I still ain't got anything, but I got a new car, you know. <laughs> but to me, Barry, it was more important than working. And it, believe it's not too working at two fifty or three fifty an hour. You got to work a lot of hours to do that. So I'm literally working twenty four hours straight uh, during certain times of the year, like harvest time 
or planning time or, you know, just running a disc or something. So I, you know, you can slower your machine down a little bit and just keep going. But, you know, too, pretty cool. I had a TV in my combine, a, you know, a, a telephone and a, and a, you know, eight tracks, you know, eight tracks where it you know, was the popular thing to have. So I would just go, go, go. And as a young guy, we can do that. Like you, Rob, you've been going for two days right now, <laughs> you know, but you know, you, when you're wanting to make that money and then too, you know, um, um, you know, it's it just when you haven't, when you don't have anything, man, this is your only opportunity you're going to do that. You know what I mean? It was an easy decision also to quit school. When I would go to school and only work part of the summer, that money wasn't saving up fast, you know? So I said, no, nah, man, I quit school. And then I got lucky and stayed on that farm and got, a, you know, a really good job where I was a manager. And that took me off the combine. I had my own company truck, had a company credit card, had a um, really nice townhouse that got me in Marion. So, you know, I moved up a little bit, so... And then I was going through flight school because they were going to buy their own crop duster. And that's how I got into aviation. But, but still, I mean, I, I still try to compare some of the stories that you told earlier and some just now. I mean, um, I had some really hard jobs growing up. I uh, took one job unloading watermelon trucks at four in the morning. Right. One throws, one catches. No, two trucks a day. And no, so you're working from four to noon. It took you, if you got good at it, which we eventually did, it would take four hours a truck. Right. I had another job of unloading 100-pound sacks of potatoes out of, out of train freight cars. But never 24 hours in a row. Right. And, and obviously these were summer jobs or, or, or vacation jobs, which means you saw an end of it. Right. You're working 24 hours a day you know, as, as a teenager in this absolutely monstrosity of, of a farm that I can't even imagine what it was like to work the equipment to do all that. Oh, dude. The, the, the walk, I mean, walking everywhere, you know, just saving all your money because you had a goal. This is where I want to be. Right. This is what it's going to take to be there. Now, my friend, when we used to unload the watermelon trucks, he used to say afterwards, man, nobody can say a word to us. Yeah. You know, we can wag our finger at anybody because, no, it's it was backbreaking work. Yeah. And four o'clock in the morning and all that. And so that, no, we, we had that, that attitude. No one's going to say anything. And that isn't even close. No, man, we used to do, uh, you know, soybeans or wheat bags or fertilizer weighed the same thing, 80 bags. Man, we might do, we did that all day long, just one after another, you know, because when, you know, you're trying to plant, you know, 70, 80,000 acres of soybeans, you got a lot of soybeans to bag up, you know. I mean, they had their own bagging company where they bagged their own beans because it's such a large operation. And then, I mean, to me, my hardest job was, uh, man, working in the rice fields. It was shoveling dirt or mud all day long in the mud and your feet are wet, stuff like that. But the cool thing about that, I, this is how you learn things, guys. Even, you know, when you learn the, the, the foundation of it, you know, I could look across, you know, one time I could look across the rice field and I could tell you exactly where the leak was starting. Okay, now get over there and, and build that up. You know, you, you, you learn it. And then for me, I could do all the complicated things like run the surveying instrument. So I, I surveyed all the levees to be sure they were perfect, with, that would hold the water good. And, uh, to me, and farming guys, it's just like when I have, and Rob, you were here with my tomato plants this year. Farming's all about pride. There's not a great deal of money in it. You know, I mean, you get to borrow money to get you a new truck or something like that, but you're not going to uh, make a million dollars cash profit. You know what I mean? It's, you're really just borrowing year to year to pay your bills. You know, even uh, the large, large farmers, like, you know, it's just the money's not there like it used to be. And most farmers today, too, aren't farm owners, they're renters. Right. I think if I'm mistaken, 
um, the number one landowner in the in the America today is uh, the foreigner. You know, like Japanese and Germans and people like that, and and the, or and then big insurance companies, and then and then the the the, the American farmers third on the pole now. They're very, very small mo- amount of American farmers that actually own the ground. Right. Well, the, the mom and pop farmer, they can't get bank loans anymore. No, they can't. And, and, the, and the only farmers that are making money are the big corporate owned. And they're the ones that are actually getting government assistance. Exactly. And the thing is, they, they got these farms down where all the land is so precisioned. They know, okay, Bob, you're go- you should be able to make 50 bushel an acre. Your land's precision. You got irrigation. And we're going to loan you this much money, but we're going to want this much. Just... They pay back, you know, just when they pay it back, they just got nickels to rub, you know. I mean, even these six and 10,000 acre farmers are just guys getting by. Well, we were passing some of those farms where they were actually little homes built for the workers there. Right. These little tiny shacks, really. I mean, like my garage back here. Right. And and, and, and to them, I, I have a funny feeling to say, wow, we really lucked out. Yeah. We, we actually have a place well, to live that's right where, nowhere we need to work. That's something you did get to witness a little bit, the, the, the living conditions for the people around here in the South, these little houses. Right, and and, and I have a funny feeling that's a lot better now than it was when, when, oh, when, when, Barry, when you were going up. Just a few years ago, I'm not kidding you, we'll see some tomorrow, but just a few years ago, and we've seen a few today, you would say, how is how can a, even just a strong wind not blow that down? Right, is, is it possible for somebody to live there? Yeah, that, that has to be. And no, no, people are actually like that there. song Neil Young, Southern Man. Right, you know, but it's true here. That's the only thing you know. I've always been a little embarrassed, and people hate me for this, but I've always been a little embarrassed about the South and being from the South, how we do treat you know not just people but animals. You know, we're all here animal lovers. I know that, but it's just how they just. I don't know. It's you know, you know, I first like. Well, hell, it's uh, he's a dog. Well, I asked about, I think a veterinarian. Well, do the dogs feel cold? Of course they do. Just because they got a you know hair that mean they don't get cold. Yep. But it's just well, you know, of course I don't know. Then you see those mushers in Alaska leave their dogs in the cold too. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's something to it. But still, I think they deserve something, you know. Well, it's, it's another part that I, I, I knew because I've known you so well that I was going to convey in the book, but it's coming out more and more that it's so easy to pe- who people don't know you know to pigeonhole you. Right. Okay, he grew up in the deep, deep south, and you know he's from Arkansas. He's got a no, no thick southern accent. Oh, look, he's this really huge guy. Oh, and by the way, he's a professional wrestler. So what's someone going to think about right away about that guy? No, he's just you no, know, no, a, a poor, dumb, no, no white trash. He, he ended up being big and muscular, so he went into that field, right. and that's not you at all. Right. I, I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've said it before on other shows, and I'll say it again that people underestimate your intelligence just because it's so easy, you no, know, to to put you in that box that says this is where he belongs. It, it fits. He's he's the here's the the peg in, in that hole. And obviously, since this is you know your book and a lot and everything that's coming is from what you're telling me, you're not trying to say make sure I look smart in this. That's, no, I mean that's yeah. not something. I just want to make sure no one. That's not, I'm not doing it for that reason. I always thought that once you and I got to know each other, I said because it's easy for me. I mean, even though I, I think hey, I'm I'm such a great liberal, I I, I I treat everyone equally. I don't automatically come to a you know a, a prejudicial decision, but of course you do. Right, because you know you we have attitudes that that are that are baked in from years of experience or what you've been told. And like I said, I know growing up in Boston, I had a certain feeling about the South. My first real girlfriend was Alabama. When I visited her, everyone know you gotta listen, have fun with this guy talks because yeah. I had a thick Boston accent. And then it was like a tiny, you know, bit of snow. Oh, what are we gonna do? I gotta go to drugstore. <laughs> 
And I could drive, and it's like, oh boy, look at these, you know, these yokels. Yeah. And that's just because I, I grew up separate from that. And right. I, I didn't understand. And then, like I said, you know, I, I moved to Atlanta. I started working for WCW. And then I'm meeting people in it. And I didn't like to think that I had attitudes. Right. Because I'm, you no, know, I don't like to think that I'm better than I'm wearing a suit. I, I but sometimes you you find that you do. Right. So I'm hoping that's another you know, part of this book that people understand. Once again, when people are starting to know you know who Sid Udi is, how he grew up, how he became the man he is, and how he's still learning who he is, like we right. all are. I mean, when I mean, I never I've, stopped learning. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I've wrote, written a, a couple of books about myself, and you learn things that that you didn't know you, because you, you're, you you're know, forced right. to think about things, you're forced to talk about them, and you're trying to convey it to someone who's never met you. So it's it's a fascinating challenge, and like I said, I I, I hope people when when it finally comes out, you no know, pick. I, we know fans are going to pick it up because that's just the way it is. But I'm hoping someone that never thought they or ever cared about watching a wrestling you know, show right. that has no interest in that, and they exist. Uh, it says this is an this is a person who I I, I, I want to get to know more about. This is right. a, this is a life that I don't know about, and and, and I want to see how this guy you know, how how he did it. Rob, what, what do you, you're from Canada. What do you think about the South? Do you see it is it is it different than what you thought? Is it because you've been here at my house now two or three times? Yeah. Um, does it different because you travel quite a bit too, but a lot up north. You seem like this is you no. Know, well, I was lucky enough. I got to live in Florida for a year and a half. Oh, really? That's right. Yeah. Got, yeah. So I did get to experience the South. And I find the South to be very underestimated. Like what? Like uh, like Barry says, you know, they, you have that preconceived notion of the Southern hick, you know, living in the mountain. Right. You know, firing at coons and banging his cousin. Right. You right, know, like right. that's... I wasn't going to say that last part, but I mean, <laughs> you did. Well, that's that's it. that's your preconceived notion of the the hillbilly, so right, to speak, of the right. South, you know. And and people down here are not like, like again, everybody has the odd one, right? Whether it's Southern, Northern, right. you know, Canadian, whatever, you all have it. But being that Southern stereotype is totally misrepresented, right. you know. Now you know Florida is actually more redneck or more southern than Arkansas. Right. You know, I mean people don't realize that that man, the the the, the level of redneck in Florida is over the top down there. Cause I got family down there. Yep. It is like I never forget one time this guy was taking me hog hunting. It was at nighttime. A little bitty guy weighed like 125 pounds and and uh he said, Man, don't turn on flashlights and we don't have a gun or nothing. So his dogs uh tree this big huge boar he ties it up, throws it over his shoulder, and carries it out over barbed wire fence and everything. We get back to the truck. He said, you turn your flashlights on. So I turned the light on. I looked down this huge tusk, like 90 inches. And I looked down, and the dude didn't have any shoes on. What? I said, man, where are you? Do you not have any shoes? He goes, oh, no, I didn't bring any. I went, are you kidding me? I mean, here at I'm from Arkansas. It's as redneck as you get. But that was the <laughs> biggest redneck moment of my life. And this is what was cool. I said, so he took it back to his house, and he grain-fed it for the, the the rest of the time I was there to sweeten the meat up a little bit. And I said, well, what do I owe you guys? Oh, man, just get us a six-pack. I said, shit, man, I'll get you a couple cases, man. <laughs> but we brought that hog back and ate it for 4th of July. It was really good. Nice. Well, like I said, there, there's the South, and then there's Florida. I mean, yes. I mean, even the rest of the South looks at Florida. I mean, and I've lived in Florida, too. No, yeah, you no, did, I, no, yeah. no, uh, Twice. And I'm sure that the part that you're talking about, you know, say it is the panhandle or, or you, you know yeah. what the nickname for Pensacola is. 
the Redneck Riviera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it's no, we're not it's, we're not talking about Miami, you know, or or Fort Lauderdale, but you no, go I was to the, St. Pete's. Yeah, in St. Pete's, which is you know, well, sort of civilized. Um, yeah, but yeah, you go to the Panhandle, and and I mean, you know, the Florida, the Florida hates a lot of. I mean, the Florida, Alabama, Florida, Georgia. I, yeah, I mean, it's probably an SEC thing. Once again, you like Florida, Rob? I loved living down there. I really did. In really? St- yeah. You just like the warmth instead of Canada? Well, there was that, you know, but right. uh, staying with my aunt, um, I was 15, and 15, 16. I had my own apartment. Oh, wow. Because she used to rent them out to people during the winter. Oh, okay. Right? But when my mother, my sister, and Where I went at? down, uh, I wish I could remember the address. I cannot remember the or address. The town? But it was in town. What was the name of the town? Oh, it was St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg. Oh, man. Me and my wife used to go there every year for vacation. Yeah, I loved it there. I loved it there, man. So really I had my cool. own place, and I had my own like patio, so right. I could come out, and there were salamanders in the trees. And now the only experience I had there, I'm sorry to bore the wrestling people with this, but it freaked me out. There is a bug called a cicada bug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, I, I picture it very different than from what apparently really happened. I was in the backyard raking leaves, and that sucker went up my leaves, up my up my leg, at like ninety miles an hour. Oh man! Racing all over freak, my body. It freaked me out. Yeah, I, I hate him. I've since been told by some people that were there that it wasn't quite that bad. I shook my leg and it was gone. But that's not what I remember. That's not what I. <laughs> Did you ever see. encounter palmetto bugs? Oh my god! So sorry. That's what I meant. Palmetto bugs. Flying cockroaches. Yeah, cicadas are from oh, Canada. Right. Yeah, it was There's- a palmetto bug. Oh, I mean, I never knew about that when I moved in Florida. That they, I, I saw this thing. I, it's a cockroach. I know. Okay, I've seen a lot of those living in Boston, New York. And then all of a sudden, it started to fly. I said, "Oh my freaking god!" Yeah, the yeah, cockroaches wow. here can fly. That oh, thing went god. up my leg. Oh god! But like I said, I yeah, I remember it all over my body. But apparently, it went up my leg. I shook it and it went out, and that was it. Man, if you guys ever want to, I got an uncle's got a nice place there. He said we could come stay anytime we wanted to. There we go. I'm a kid, man. It's right there, at, uh, Cocoa Beach, Cape Canaveral. You got to talk into the mic. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> got too relaxed. But no, it's in the middle of everything. It's right there, 30 minutes from Daytona, 30 minutes from uh, Disney World, 30 minutes from Cocoa Beach. Very Cape nice. Cape Canaveral, oh, nine yards. Yeah. I was just down there on go. That area is so nice. Yeah, it is, man. I could go down there and just, I'm not shitting you, man, just stay on the beach. He's got one of those big things that make out to a tent, you know, just stay out there all day long. But of course, he's a bachelor. He's got his place really set up, really cool. He's got party lights outside. He cooks out all the time. So we're gonna see how we get this into your novel. Well, yeah, yeah. Florida, like I said, Florida. I mean, visit Florida. Don't live there. No, yeah, visit. Of course, you know what I mean. Just don't move. I mean, I, I yeah, I moved there because I said, wow, I, I was on vacation and I was having a bad time. No, I was living in Colorado and I, I was on vacation. I said, wow, there's so much left to no less to be angry at here. Right. You're on vacation. You know, of course, right. it's less to be right. angry at. Just when you move there now, it's a year long, and then you realize all the things like, okay, driving 95, that's something to get angry at. A hurricane, that's something to get angry at. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I was living in Hollywood, which is right near Fort Lauderdale. You driving 95? Driving I-95. Oh, I thought you'd been driving 95 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, you can't drive. Well, yeah. It's you have to drive 95 on 95, you, almost. If, if you can, if you know, otherwise you're going to be behind the, you know, the, the 98-year-old lady that can't see you over the dashboard. Right. She's going two miles an hour. Does that mean I was going too slow on 476? <laughs> <laughs> no, on 95, you got to drive. If you can. Yeah. No, 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 if you can. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Florida as a vacation. Not so much to live there. No, I had a great, of course, I spent so much time there. 
I always went there to do rehab all my surgeries. You know, so my grandfather lived there, and then my aunt, and now my uncle does. But um, it's a great place, like I said, to visit. I wouldn't – I don't know if um, – I don't know. It's just um, – it's like you said, the hurricanes. It's just so many things to worry about. You know yeah, I mean? I mean, I hate summers there. I mean, you can't, you can't get dry. You take a shower. You go, you know, you're trying yeah. to get to. Okay, I park as close to my you no know, door as I can. So the minute I leave my air conditioned house, I can go in my air conditioned car. In the ten feet, you're already sweating. Sweating. Yeah. No, you're, 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 I mean, uh, I just no, I no. <laughs> no. So what's the name of the book? <laughs> Poetry in the Sand. I'm anxious to to see this. So we're gonna stop this episode so he can get back to writing. Right. Oh, fine. So much for my vacation. That's right. <laughs> Vacation's Back to over. Work. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get to a question. Okay, man. My time is yours. Hey there, this is Rob. Uh, I know you're waiting for the question that normally appears here. Uh, what I'm going to do right now, though, is let you know that if you have a question for Sid, we want to know what it is. And now this is not one of those things where you would call in and I record the question and then Sid answers it later. No, you will speak with Sid. And he will answer your question right to you as we talk. That's how we recorded. As you know, uh, unless you know it's stated otherwise, everything in this podcast is raw. It is live. It is unedited. And we want to keep it that way. So we want your questions. If you have a question, please get a hold of us. Send me an email, info at viciouscirclepod.com, or even hit us up on the Facebook page at Vicious Circle Pod. And uh, send me a message. We will get your information, get us together, and sit down with you, me, Sid, and we will get some questions recorded. So please, get a hold of us. You've been listening to the Vicious Circle Podcast. Your host, Sid Udi. Co-host, J. Robert Bellamy. Additional research by Pete Marsh. The Vicious Circle Podcast was produced by Two Cousin Road Trip Media, a division of JX3 Media Productions. The intro music, Omega Amigo, was by The Shaman. All rights to the podcast are held by Sid Udi.